0: You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to VillageChurchBaltimore.com.
1: Good morning. Our scripture will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. by the Spirit of our God.
0: Father, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us an opportunity to gather, even though it is chilly, uh, to reflect on who you are, who we are, and how all of that connects and um, how we fit into this whole church thing. I pray that you help us to uh, be receptive to what you have to say to us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, My name is Larry. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. Today, we are continuing our series through 1 Corinthians. We're going through this series called the United Church, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul wrote this to the Church of Corinth to address several issues. And um, the first major section of this book is 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. And in that section, uh, Paul is encouraging people not to be divided by following different leaders in the church, but to be united under the gospel and Christ and him crucified. And the next major section is 1 Corinthians 5-6, to I would say. And here's a quick outline of this section. Uh, last week we talked about sexual immorality. Chapters 5, 1-13 through talked about um, uh, how the, the church in Corinth, they were being lax about sexual immorality. And Paul was saying, you need to call this out. You know, you can't just let people do whatever they want. And today, um, I'm, I'm going to call it greed. I'll explain it in a little bit. But we're talking about how this this person in the church of Corinth is having a dispute with another person in the church of Corinth. And they're actually taking each other to court over it. So Paul's addressing that. And then next week, we're talking about 6, 12 to 20, which is about sexual morality immorality again. And it's interesting that Paul does this. Um and, and and I want to point out There's also, in this whole section, chapters 5 and 6, there are two lists of sins that Paul gives. There, it shows up two times. The first is in 511. So in chapter 5, verse 11, I was just going to read this. It goes, but now I am writing to you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of, and here's a list, sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That was from last week. And then in uh, chapter 6, 9 through 10, there's a very similar list of sins, Paul says, Or do you not know? that the right, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And so there are these two places in chapters 5 and 6 where, where, where Paul is talking about, don't be like this and don't associate with people like this because these types of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And um, so what I think Paul is doing is In this section, he's trying to show how the church is to be different from the world. He's trying to show what are the characteristics of the world and how the church should not associate with these characteristics because the people who embody these characteristics, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so twice he provides these lists of, this is how one of the ways you can, you know, this is not an exclusive, exhaustive list. I mean, there are other sins, of course, but uh, he's saying, don't be like this, and he says this list two times, and I think what he's doing, and he's, he's highlighting two of these sins in particular, which show up both times in these lists. The first is sexual immorality, which, is, which encompasses a lot of these things in this list anyways, and the, and the second one is greed, which also encompasses swindling and thievery and things like that, which is another thing that we'll talk about today. So to be precise, uh, again, the specific scenario in 6, 1 through 11 that Nancy read earlier is about this Christian in the church having a dispute with another Christian in the church. And they are bringing each other to court, but I th- I'm calling greed because that's in the list, number one. And two, I think what Paul is doing, he's understanding this dispute, bringing each other to court, is just a surface-level issue, the true issue is that these people have greed and they are allowing their greed to break up the unity of the church and the fellowship of the church. So I think that's the issue that I want to address. Now I want to open that up to, to us because most of us, most likely, have not brought another Christian to court. Okay, Most of us, were not in that kind. Of, maybe, maybe some of you have done that, okay, and this is relevant for you if you've done that. But most of us, we don't, I've never brought a Christian to court. Uh, it's expensive to go to court, so I, I haven't done that. But... Um, I have been greedy before. And I imagine some of you might have been greedy before. So I'm framing today's sermon under the overall uh, topic of greed in the church. Paul is calling out the church in Corinth for the greed, and that's what I want to talk about today. Today I'll offer four biblical principles based off this passage that can help us to resist a culture of greed in our church. And so I'm going to nail on these four, talk about these four main principles. And each main point will be framed this way. I'm going to say, don't pursue blank. But pursue blank. Don't pursue blank, but pursue blank. And so that's what I'll do. Number one, don't pursue self-advancement, pursue reconciliation. Don't pursue self-advancement, pursue reconciliation. And this is based off of verses 1 through 6. Many countries um, throughout history, and uh, even today in a country like ours, have broken justice systems, broken legal systems. And what I mean by that is uh, these systems are such that if you are rich, if you are privileged, if you, are, if you have a high social standing, you are more likely to get away with crimes or you are more likely to get lesser sentences for certain crimes. Whereas if you are poor, if you are powerless, if you are downtrodden, you are more likely to be convicted of crimes or more likely to be given stronger sentences of, for crimes. And that was definitely true in Paul's day. That was definitely true in the Roman Empire, in Paul's day. And there's a few things to know about the legal system of Paul's day. Number one, it was very expensive to take people to court. It was very expensive to take people to court. And as a result, if you are going to settle a dispute in a court system, most likely you are a rich or wealthy person. Okay, that's just how it was in Paul's day. Poor people didn't sue people because they couldn't afford it. All right. Uh, Number two, it was pretty common for judges to be dishonest. It's pretty common for judges, to be honest, Uh, and they would often rule in favor of the people who had the best social standing, the most social influence, because they just didn't want to, you know, they didn't want this well-known person to not like them, and so they would often rule in favor of such people. And number three, bribery, bribery was very common. Bribery was very common. It was very common for people who were rich to just pay the judge off. And then they would get a lighter sentence, or they would get no sentence, or something like that. Um, So oftentimes, whoever had the most money would win in court. And so that's how the court system was structured in Paul's day in the Roman Empire. So keep that in mind. Uh, We're going to reread verses 1 through 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not... Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So Paul saying that as Christians we have this unique place to settle disputes, and that place is called the church. Okay, he's saying if you're a Christian, you have this special arena, the special environment to settle disputes, and that's called the church. And this church is this place where you all have the same set of values, the same set of principles, the same, set of, the same level of common ground, foundation, where you can talk in, in ways to bring about reconciliation and justice and righteousness. And he's saying... If that's the arena you have, why then would you choose to forsake that arena and choose to take this dispute to the secular system that is full of unrighteousness, full of bribery, full of corruption? So that's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, he's suspecting, the only reason why you would do that is because you care more about your personal self-advancement than you care about true reconciliation. He's saying, you care more about your personal self-advancement. You want to beat this person. You want to win this argument against this brother or sister than to experience true reconciliation. Because in the church, what you can do, ideally, is you can resolve this dispute with integrity, with cooperation, with love, with fellowship. But instead, you are using this alternative strategy, the way of the world. You're trying to win your case Potentially with, with aggression, with antagonism, in this way where you're trying to win money from this person. And here's why this is dangerous. Um, when Christians disagree with one another, and it's common, it happens when Christians disagree with one another, um, but they choose to pursue reconciliation in a godly way, then what happens is, mo- is both parties win. Both parties win doesn't matter what the dispute is. If you have a a gospel-centered reconciliation in the context of the church where two people disagree, both parties win because they're learning from one another. They're both repenting potentially. They're both forgiving one another. They're both growing. And many of you, you might have experienced something like that. You know, you have a disagreement with someone in the church, and you have a conversation, you, you hash things out, you realize there's some misunderstanding, and you communicate with one another, and you both come to appreciate and love one another more because of it. And that's how reconciliation is supposed to happen. But when Christians disagree with another, with one another, and they choose not to pursue reconciliation, and, and they instead they choose to pursue the selfish, personal self advancement, then what happens is they is they make, they make adversaries of one another. They make enemies of one another. And once you do that, then it's inevitable for one party to win and one party to lose. Or sometimes, in some cases, both parties lose but it's inevitable that you can't have both parties winning anymore. What you have is people arguing with one another, dividing against one another, bickering with one another. It produces bitterness and hostility. And I want to ask, do you have any disagreements with a fellow Christian? Do you have any disagreements with a fellow Christian? Maybe they go to our church, maybe they don't. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone you don't really know that well, but you just, you know, they've always rubbed you the wrong way. Do you have some sort of dispute, some sort of disagreement, some sort of tension? with another Christian, whatever the case, I encourage you to pursue not self-advancement, not in a way that where you can beat this guy down, win an argument, win a fight, but pursue reconciliation. Open up the conversation, have dialogue, pursue reconciliation. Um, I want to move on to the next one, but before we get there, I want to clarify one question because sometimes people may read something like this and they may ask, does this mean that a Christian should never bring another Christian to court under any circumstances? And that's a complex question, and maybe people have different answers, but I personally think that there are scenarios when it might be okay for Christians to sue other Christians. Um, And I see that because in verse 2, I'm going to read verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And I think this term, trivial case, is important because I think in Paul's mind, I don't know the exact details of this specific case, but in his mind, this was a trivial case. So I think his argument is, if you're having a trivial case, don't bring it to the court. Um, So I think the lesson is, if there is a non-trivial case, a very significant case, a case in which there is potentially a serious crime involved, for example, then that might be appropriate to go use a secular court system. One example, if somebody in our church sexually assaults another person in our church, if someone in our church sexually assaults another person in our church, that is not a trivial case. That is a very significant case. Uh, But unfortunately, many people throughout history, they've, they've decided this is a trivial case, and they've decided we're not going to tell the court systems. We're not going to tell the police. We're not going to tell the government. We're going to keep it within our church. And so some people have pointed to passages like 1 Corinthians to justify that sort of action. And, and I would say that I don't think that's Paul's point. I think you're twisting Paul's words. I don't think Paul meant to, to keep all cases, even criminal matters, within the, court, within the church. So Paul's not talking about that, so don't twist what Paul's saying. So that's, I just want to point that out before we move on. Okay, next point. Number two, don't pursue self-entitlement, pursue endurance. Don't pursue self-entitlement, pursue endurance. I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Paul's saying that when we're having these trivial disputes, he's saying... Number one, if you are so consumed by these disputes, so consumed by these disputes, so upset and so angry about these disputes, so divisive about these disputes that you are taking this brother or sister to court, then you have already lost. He says it, it is already a defeat for you. You've already lost. In your mind, you're thinking, I'm going to bring this guy to court so that I can win. But he's saying, if you're already thinking that way, you've already lost the real fight. You've already lost the real fight. Because ultimately what matters is not whether you win or lose in this specific incident against this brother or sister where, you know, maybe someone stole something from you or trying to get something back. That's not the main issue. That's not the main issue. The main issue is you've had a disagreement with this brother or sister to the point that you're willing to take this person to court. And when you've gotten there, it shows that you've lost fellowship with that person You've lost unity with that person. You've lost a brother and sister. And because of that, you've already been defeated. You're choosing to fight your fellow Christian over something small, and you've turned that friend into an enemy. And although you may win something in the short term, you may win money, you may win social uh, approval, whatever it is you're trying to get, you may win something you've lost in the long term because you've lost a friend in the process. And your church has lost unity in the process. There's a similar passage in Luke 12, uh, where Jesus teaches a pretty similar thing. I'll start from verse 13. Uh, Someone in the crowd said to him, this is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So I'm going to pause. So it seems like we don't know the exact details, but someone's coming to Jesus with almost like trying to settle a dispute, right? And he's trying to get Jesus on his side as opposed to his brother's side. Someone wants to, uh, uh, just like this guy in 1 Corinthians, someone is trying to, Turn his brother into an adversary in order to settle this dispute so they can have financial gain, but he, Jesus verse 14 said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'm want to pause right there. So this is odd, okay? Think about this. So this guy, he probably had some good reason to come to Jesus. he's not trying to be deceitful, probably. He probably thinks that uh, what is owed to him is actually owed to him, so he's not being deceitful. And you may think that Jesus cares about justice, so Jesus is going to say, oh, yeah, you know, this is your fair share, so yeah, I'm going to, you know, here's a little note for me. Give it to your brother or something like that. But Jesus doesn't do that because what Jesus realizes, there's something more important than this dispute, and that is the condition of this guy's heart. There's something more important than this specific dispute where this guy wants something from his brother. And that is that this man doesn't need just a judge. This man needs a heart change. And Jesus is able to see that this dispute is just a surface level issue. The real issue underneath it all is greed and covetousness. The real issue is this guy wants what he doesn't have. And so Jesus, he recognizes the more important issue, and, he's, and so he decides to start addressing the more important issue. He doesn't even address the dispute. Instead, he warns him, be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he tells him. And then he, he keeps going, starting from verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying... The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus is able to see this guy's heart and, and we don't know the exact details about this guy, but um, Jesus is able to see that this guy, I mean, he, he's telling this parable to this guy. So he, he's trying to, so if you're not putting the pieces together, this rich man in this parable is supposed to represent this guy. So I think what Jesus is doing is saying, you are trying to build more wealth for yourself and rather than doing that, I think what you should do is you should, Build treasures in heaven. You should think about what are the spiritual things involved. And I think in this particular incident, he's saying it is more important to have love, unity, fellowship with your brother than to have financial gain. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying don't elevate financial gain above spiritual gain. Don't elevate financial gain above spiritual gain. And I think in the same way, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying just that. He's saying, this dude, you're trying to take your brother to court, don't elevate financial gain above spiritual gain. So what should we do instead? What should we do instead if we don't take a brother to court? Well, Paul is saying, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul sets the priority straight. He's saying, your relationship with your brother or sister in Christ is so important that so important that it is okay sometimes to go through experiences where you feel wrong, you feel defrauded, but you're not suing that person because that relationship is so important. It is better to suffer wrongly. It is better to be defrauded. It is better to endure injustice with your brother or sister than to take your brother and sister to court. That's what Paul is saying. And why is that? Because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did for us. Think about this. Jesus could have taken us all to court. I'm not talking about basketball, okay? Maybe he could have done that too. But Jesus could have taken us to court legally. We were all guilty, but instead, Jesus chose not to condemn us. He chose to become a human being. He chose to suffer wrongly. He chose to be defrauded. He chose to be falsely convicted in the court system himself. He chose to endure injustice for our sake. And so, when we see that example, that should frame how we resolve issues. That's that should frame how uh, how we resolve issues in the church as well. We will have times when we feel wronged or cheated by other Christians, and during those times, we can choose to allow our greed to come out. We can choose to uh, impulsively go into fight mode, uh, or we could choose the way of Jesus. And Jesus, according to Hebrews twelve, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And so that should be our goal as well. For the joy set before us, the joy of unity, the joy of fellowship, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of reconciliation, for the joy set before us, we endure the cross as well. Next, don't pursue self-indulgence, pursue compassion. Don't pursue self-indulgence, pursue compassion. Here's a list of sins in verses 9-10 through that uh, I mentioned earlier, but I'll just read it again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to clarify one thing real quick. Um, I don't think that Paul is saying, if you do these things, you will go to heaven. If you don't, I'm sorry. If you do these things, you will not go to heaven. If you do these, anyways, you get my point. So, Because sometimes when people read this passage, they're thinking, oh, this is the litmus test for who is saved and who's not saved. This is the litmus test for who is part of the kingdom, who is not part of the kingdom. I don't think that's Paul's point. I think what Paul is saying is he's saying, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you should have certain traits, certain fruits, certain characteristics. If you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you should also have certain traits or fruits or characteristics and he's saying that one of the ways you can tell, okay, if someone is part of the kingdom or not, is you look at what their lives look like. You just look at what their lives look like. And if, it's, if it seems like these characteristics that he's listing out is embodying this person, then it doesn't matter what he says out of his mouth. It doesn't matter how many times he goes to church on, on a Sunday. I mean, one time, I guess, but anyways. It doesn't matter how often he goes to church. That person is demonstrating through his life, through his actions, who, through his behavior, that he does not actually inherit the kingdom of God. So I think that's what Paul's point is. And uh, this language of inheriting the kingdom of God I, or a kingdom of heaven, um, this is an interesting phrase, uh, and, it's, and it's a very specific way this thing is talked about in the Bible. There's actually four different places in the New Testament uh, in which this phrase uh, inheriting the kingdom of god is is, is talked about and, and, is, and it gives a sort of like a list of what it looks like to inherit or not inherit the kingdom of god. So I'm going to give you the whole list. So the first one is we just read this 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god and they're like this and this and this and this, okay? Here's another one, Galatians 5:19 through 21. Galatians 5:19 through 21. I'm going to read it out. Now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Interesting. Notice the list is pretty similar. You see a lot of repeated words, right? A lot of repeated words. Okay, let's keep going. Ephesians 5.5. Ephesians 5.5, for you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, very similar language. Sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry. It's a very similar list. So all three of these lists were written by Paul. And they all list these characteristics of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And it seems like, you might you try, you try to wonder, why is it that he chooses these particular sins? Okay? Well, let's read the fourth passage because the fourth passage is unlike these passages because it talks about what you should do instead of what you shouldn't do. Okay, So this is in Matthew 25, 34 to 40. What you should do, should do instead of what you shouldn't do. Then the king, this is Jesus talking, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you, are blessed, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. That's the phrase, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those who inherit the kingdom are those who live with an others-oriented compassion. An others-oriented compassion. They care for the least of these, my brothers. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, they notice people in the church. He's calling them my brothers. Okay, he's noticing people in the church who are thirsty, hungry, stranger, they're in prison, they're sick, they're naked, they're noticing these types of people, and they are actively responding in compassion to care for those people. And those are the people who inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is characterized by people who do these things. And and so, what's the opposite of these things? When you look at these lists of people, they describe people who do not inherit the kingdom. It seems like these sins are the opposite way. Instead of Others-oriented compassion. These sins, these people, are they have a self-oriented indulgence. They don't care about other people and their needs. All they care about is their own needs. And they care about their needs so much that they're willing to even reject what God says about it, reject what people say about it. All they care is about fulfilling their own needs, whether it's sexual immorality or greed or drunkenness. All of these are characterized by, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm just going to fulfill my own needs. I'm going to indulge myself. And so that that is the characteristic that that defines those who do not inherit the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, people aren't greedy because they're not concerned about indulging themselves. They are concerned about other people. Greed is undercut by compassion for others. Greed is undercut by compassion for others. When you are noticing people in need and your heart is moved to care for people who are in need, you don't have time to be greedy. You're caring about other people. And that should define the kingdom of God. At this time, I want to take a little aside to spend five minutes to address the elephant in the room. Maybe some of you haven't seen the elephant in the room yet, but I'm going to point it out. In this list is this phrase, men who practice homosexuality men who practice homosexuality. And I think it's important to address this. There are two times in the whole Bible where this word homosexuality appears. And this is one of those times. And so we don't have too many times to talk about this, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, but first off, I want to say a Gallup poll in 2016. A Gallup poll in 2016 shows that 4% of all Americans and 7% of all millennials self-identify as LGBT. 4% of all Americans and 7% of all millennials self-identify as LGBT. And this doesn't, even, this doesn't even include people who have same-sex attraction, but they don't even want to identify. So that's a pretty considerable camp too. And it's, I don't know if you think that's high or low, but one of the unfortunate realities about the modern church is that many Christians either pretend that LGBT people don't exist or they resort to these oversimplified statements or mantras that are just not helpful to LGBT people. And so as a result, LGBT people, they're, they're, they're leaving our churches in droves. Okay, so I think it's important for our church to talk about it, to try to figure out what the Bible says about it, to learn, okay, what does the culture say about it? How can we create conversations about it? Um, I also want to acknowledge that many Christians have different biblical interpretations on this topic. And so I want you to know If you have a stance that is different from our church's stance, that's okay, okay? We're not asking you to leave our church or anything like that. We welcome you, regardless of what you believe on this issue, whether it's culturally or theologically, whatever, politically, whatever you believe about this issue, we want you to know that you're welcome in our church. Um, and, uh, And I know, just from having people, having conversations with people in our church, I know there are people who disagree on this issue, even in our church. So, that's, so I want you to know that's a thing, okay? But I want you to know our church has a stance. I want you to know that our church is, has a stance. I um, also want people to—I have so many caveats, okay? So I also think it's worth everybody's time to read up on why different Christians believe different things. Some of you grow up in certain backgrounds where it's just, oh, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, and that's just what you believe, and that's what you believe your whole life. And you've never really interacted with people who identify as gay or lesbian. You just that's just something you believe, and you've never really thought about it before. I would encourage you, if that's you, I think you should give it some more thought, okay? Because it's not as simplistic as that, okay? I also want to say, some of you, you might not be from a Christian background, uh, and maybe you've always grown up and you've always thought of being gay or lesbian. That's just who you are, and you know we should just accept you for who you are, and. We shouldn't really say anything about you, we shouldn't judge you in any way. And that's just and, and people used to believe stuff about sexuality, but we've realized we're wrong. And so now we've progressed to a place where we should just give you uh you know, we should fully embrace all of who you are and your identity and your expression. And I would say if that's you, I would encourage you to have conversations as well. Because I don't think that's just I don't personally, I don't think that's what the Bible says. Okay? One of the confusing things is that this word homosexuality in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, this word homosexuality, there's a lot of debate academically about what this word means. Um, And to be frank, uh, this word in the original Greek is the word arsenokoites, and this is the first use of this word that we know of in any writing in Greek history, okay? And so it seems like Paul made up this word, That's what it seems like. From an academic, historical standpoint, it seems like Paul just made up this word. And so because Paul made up this word, there's a lot of debate. Okay, why did Paul make up this word? What does this word mean? And so some people, they would say, oh, this isn't talking about homosexuality in the broad sense. This is talking about homosexuality in a very particular sense. Maybe it's about homosexual rape or maybe it's about homosexuality in the context of non-religious practices. And so that's why a lot of people who are progressive, they, they will look at passages like this, even though they might say, I believe in the word of God, they would say, this doesn't apply to me because I'm in a monogamous, committed homosexual relationship. And so there's a lot of debates. I think it's worthwhile to look into it. But I'm going to give you two resources uh, real quick if you're interested in learning about it. The first one is called People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue by Preston Sprinkle. He starts from a clean slate, and he dives into a bunch of biblical passages about the topic. And the overall tone, what I love about it, the overall tone is very humble and pastoral. He's not beating anybody down. Unlike some books, other books I've read. And, uh, and it's a little under 200 pages. He does eventually come down on the side of he thinks homosexual behavior is a sin. Okay, so that, that's what he believes. But I recommend that book. If you're an audio person, the best sermon I've heard on the topic is The Controversial Jesus, Jesus in the Gay Community by, by John Tyson. It's an hour and a half, very long, and he talks quickly. But uh, he goes over a history of the modern LGBT movement and he goes through a very thorough survey of all the, the biblical passages. You can find it on the Church of the City podcast. It's also on YouTube. Anyways, I won't go into all the details, but I looked into this a lot. I read books months ago to prepare for this. And I believe a strong case can be made that this word means a man who lies with a male. This word homosexuality means a male who lies with a male. And a strong case can be made that this made-up word that Paul uses is intentionally referencing two passages in Leviticus where there are these two, because arsenokoites is, is a compound word, and, uh, and Paul is intentionally referencing these two passages in the book of Leviticus that are explicitly prohibiting homosexual activity. So as far as I can tell, Paul does not seem to condone any type of homosexual behavior, even including committed, monogamous relationships. Okay, so that's the church's stance. With that said, I think it's important to say that many people in church history have been negatively affected by the church in, a, in regard to this issue. And so I think as a result, there are a few things that our church should do. Uh, there are a few things that our church should do while maintaining this historic stance. First off, we should stop saying that same-sex orientation is a sin. Same-sex, we should stop saying that same-sex orientation is a sin. And now, and I'm meaning this this way. Orientation is different from behavior. Orientation is different from behavior. And as far as we can tell, scientifically, biologically, you cannot choose your orientation, but you can choose your behavior. And even if you don't believe that, okay, by saying same-sex orientation is a sin, you are talking potentially, to people who do believe that. And the message you're giving to people when you're saying stuff like being gay is sinful, people are out, they're not thinking uh, in terms of behavior, they're thinking of orientation. When you say stuff like that, it is culturally confusing because you are telling them that they should feel guilty over feelings they cannot control. You're telling them to feel guilty over feelings they cannot control because they, that's what their lens is. And they're going to think that Christianity is backwards. Okay, so that's the first thing. Uh, same-sex orientation uh, uh, is different from same-sex behavior. Uh, same-sex orientation means—I I think this is what it means. Same-sex orientation means that a person is more tempted to sin, to act out in homosexual behavior, than someone else who does not have same-sex orientation. But I don't think it's a sin to be tempted. I don't think it's a sin to be tempted. I think it's only a sin when you, when you follow through with a temptation and act out in that temptation. So I don't think it's a sin to have same-sex orientation. It's number one. Secondly, we should stop saying that people have same-sex attraction because blank. We should stop saying that people have same-sex attraction because blank. And you can fill in the blank with a lot of reasons. People have same-sex attraction because they choose to be gay. People have same-sex attraction because they've experienced traumatic childhood events. People have same-sex attraction because they had emotionally distant fathers. Whatever your reasoning is, Again, I don't think there's any biblical evidence for that. I don't think there's any scientific evidence for that. So when we say stuff like that, we're just being culturally insensitive, culturally confusing. And this is no different than in in John chapter 9. The disciples saw this blind man and they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And what the disciples, they were trying to do, they were trying to find a reason to explain his fallen condition. And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so I think it is confusing, insensitive, sometimes hurtful, to try to tell, oh, you're you're gay because of this, because you chose this, or because your parents did this. I think that's just confusing. There's no basis behind it, and it makes people hurt. Confusing, Okay? Confused, don't do that. Thirdly, we should stop promising people that they can be delivered from same-sex attraction. We should stop promising people that they can be delivered from same-sex attraction. Whether it's prayer or therapy, there have been a ton of money or resources poured into what's called ex-gay therapy. Ex-gay therapy is... Uh, the process by which you take someone who has same-sex attraction, you put them in this program so that they are rescued from that, so now they have become heterosexual. And um, there have been a small minority of people, and they testify that it has worked, but the large majority of people who go through this process, they would say, and some of them, they've gotten to a point where they're even in heterosexual marriages, but they would still say they struggle immensely with same-sex attraction. And so I believe that what we've done is we have offered false hope. We've set people up for failure. And a lot of people have gone through this process and after a few years, they leave the church. And so I would just say, we should stop promising that they can be delivered from same-sex attraction. And lastly, we should stop being so taboo about the topic. I was speaking at a church retreat a few years ago and uh, the conversation came up. They wanted to have workshops about different topics. And one of the topics was homosexuality. should, Should we have a workshop on this? And the lead pastor said, no, we shouldn't have it, it's too controversial. That's what he said. So he ended up not talking about this. And I believe that one of the biggest reasons why the church in our culture is seen as irrelevant is because we are too afraid to talk about controversial topics. What controversial topics embody is these are the cutting-edge things that our culture is concerned about. And if our culture, if our church doesn't take a stance, if our church hides, if our church is not engaged in these issues, then it shows that we're not caring about the culture. It shows that we're not caring about the issues that the culture cares about. We're sitting on the sidelines, and if we keep sitting on the sidelines, we're gonna. I mean, the culture is going to leave us behind because the culture is moving, the culture is engaging, the culture doesn't think it's a taboo thing to talk about. The culture is talking about it, and I think it's important, especially in today's day and age. Um, to talk about these things because the controversial topics determine the trajectory of culture. And if we want to be relevant, if we want to reach our culture, we need to be talking about these issues. And so there's still a lot of questions I'm not going to address because that's not the main point of this topic. I just think it's important to talk about a few things because the word is there. It's in our passage. We're preaching through 1 Corinthians. It shows up. we got to talk about it. And uh, I just want to say, if you want to talk about it, I uh, reach out I mean, you read those resources, you know, uh, listen to the sermons. But if you want to talk about it, if this is something you really want to figure out, uh, if you have things I've said that I've offended you, I want to apologize to you um, in advance. But I want to know your story, your side of things as well. So talk to me, talk to Pastor Andy, talk to someone in our church. Don't hide it, okay? We need more Christians who are willing to dive into, dive into controversy, to learn, to ask questions, to dialogue. Okay, back to the text. Next point. Don't pursue self-righteousness. Pursue Jesus. Don't pursue self-righteousness. Pursue Jesus. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul reminds us at the end of the section that if it weren't for Jesus, none of us would inherit the kingdom of God. That whole list, the laundry list of things that characterize people who don't inherit the kingdom of God, that's us outside of Jesus. And so he makes sure to end this way on this fundamental truth that though we have all sinned, though we have all lived lives that do not align with God's values, we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified. Ju- as much as we would like to point our fingers at other people, we would look at this list of things and we would say, oh, this guy's matching up, but this, this guy does this, and this guy does this. We should always remember that God could have pointed his finger at us. God could have pointed his finger at us. At a whole list of things. And I think this is how the way self-righteousness works sometimes. You know, we all have, I, I would call, self um, pet peeve sins. Pet peeve sins. Pet peeve sins. These are sins where usually you don't have these sins. Someone else has these sins. Where uh, we just really dislike these sins. And we just can't believe that some people have these sins. Some people struggle with these sins. Especially in the church. And, you know, they can be sexual, sexual immorality. It can be greed. It can be arrogance, selfishness, racism, uh, divisiveness. And so we don't struggle with these sins, but other people struggle with these sins. And so it really bugs us that so-and-so struggles with these sins. And when that happens, we start to feel self-righteous, self-righteous. We start to feel better than so-and-so because they struggle with the sin, but we don't. But the reality is that outside of Jesus, we are no more righteous than anybody else, and the reality is we did nothing to earn our righteousness. We did nothing to earn our salvation and, and this is important because in verse eleven, all of these verbs that are mentioned are passive verbs, passive verbs meaning we didn't do the work, God did the work. we had no active role in making these things happen it's not like we washed it 's not like we uh, washed ourselves God washed us it's not like we Uh, sanctified ourselves God sanctified us it's not like we justified ourselves God justified us and so we did nothing to earn our status as citizens of the kingdom of God and knowing that we did nothing should cut away at our greed and cut away at our self-righteousness greed comes from a place of I deserve this because I earned this and I worked for this and I'm better than this and so I need to have this That's how greed manifests itself. It's from self-righteousness. But if the gospel strips away self-righteousness, if the gospel is the fact that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't work for it, uh, we were freely given redemption and restoration, then we have no more reason for self-righteousness. We have no more reason for greed. Now that we have redemption and restoration, what more could you want? Now that we have... Redemption and restoration, what more could you want? Our relationship with God has given us everything that we need. And so we understand that even though we had nothing through the grace of Jesus, we have been given everything we ever wanted. There is no more reason to be greedy. As Ephesians 1 says, we have been given every spiritual blessing under the heavenly places. So why argue? Why have disputes? Why have these unresolved differences so much that you want to take people to court over these little things when you already have everything you want through Jesus? Why argue over pennies when you already have been given everything? Why pursue self advancement when you, through Christ, have already advanced into the kingdom of God? We have already advanced into the kingdom of God. Why would you pursue self advancement? What more could your self advancement agenda give you? Why pursue self entitlement when you, through Christ, are entitled? Our privilege, are already promised an eternal inheritance. We've already been given an eternal inheritance. So what more could your self-entitlement agenda give you? Why pursue self-indulgence when you, through Christ, are invited to one day indulge at the wedding feast of the Lamb? One day you will be given everything you ever want and you will be perfectly satiated. Why even pursue self-indulgence? What, what more could your self-indulgence agenda give you? And why pursue self-righteousness when you, through Christ, have been made righteous, when he voluntarily became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God? What more could your self-righteousness agenda give you? I encourage you to free yourself from greed and run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess that oftentimes we are filled with greed, so greedy that we are okay ruining our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes so greedy that we choose not to resolve conflict, but choose to allow this conflict to simmer and simmer and eventually blow up in our faces. So greedy that we choose not to pursue reconciliation. So greedy that we put our church division and disunity on display, not only for our own church to see, but for the whole world to see. So so the whole world may see how broken and divided and ugly we are. God, I pray that you would please bring us back to Jesus. Remind us that Jesus, though he was rich, chose to become poor, that we might become rich. Remind us of your grace and love for us and let us, the Village Church, become a church of reconciliation, of endurance, of compassion, a church marked by Jesus and his lifestyle. That your church will be built up and the world will be redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.